Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Today's guest is Irma Ramirez. She is a professor in the architecture department and director of the China Study Abroad Program at Cal Poly Pomona. Her accolades include the NCARB Grand Prize and the National Linton Citation for Distinguished Engaged Scholarship, which was awarded for the Habitat 21 Sustainable Settlements Project in Tijuana. She also has awards from the American Planning Association, American Institute of Certified Planners, and the Environmental Design Research Association for work in the China program. I admire how she pushes herself and her students to grow through uncomfortable new experiences and interdisciplinary thinking. Now, without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Well, I got started teaching very young, actually. I think maybe uh, in a traditional path, I think maybe people uh, work much longer in the profession and then maybe, you know, go to teaching or, um, and I, I mean, there's a lot of people teaching young, but I sort of landed a uh, tenure track position here at Cal Poly. Uh, but I had been teaching at uh, East Los Angeles College and uh, Pasadena City College, which were, I think, places that gave me a lot of mission hmm. in, in life to kind of continue on influencing the younger generations. I've always had an interest in social studies and, and how they relate to design. There hasn't always been a lot of support. Uh, if you know, we think back when I was in school, I was in at UCLA in the 1990s. And I struggled really finding grounding to some of the work that I was doing in architecture that meant something for people. So, so I think that's initially where I really felt like I needed to find something that would keep me mostly in can architecture. You, can you point to like an example maybe of a project or like a, mm -hmm. something you were doing where you just didn't feel connected and then how you brought your own mission into that kind of work? Yes, actually, uh, I was working on my, my thesis project at UCLA. By that time, I had already applied to do the joint master's degree with urban planning. Mm -hmm. And that was mostly because I was feeling that I needed to have uh, more social content to the work that I was doing in architecture. So I joined the, the planning program. So it was right around that time that I was doing my thesis and I was doing a project that was a, um, it had to do with the metro stations in Los Angeles, which at that time, this was back in the 90s, they were just developing, they were being built. Uh, and they were, for the most part, a huge waste of space. I thought, you know, that coming from Mexico City and seeing cities that really rely on transportation and where the transportation hubs are really meccas for social activity. I really felt like it was an underutilized resource here in LA and we had the opportunity to shape it for the future. So I took on a project for my thesis that was uh, the station on Vermont and Wilshire, which now is a completely, it's gone through several iterations. Now it's a mega housing development. But at that time, um, it was just starting to come together. And I thought that the ideal hub there would be to integrate uh, the entire pedestrian passage from the moment that you, you know, get on the train, you know, to go to your destination and also uh, transition to other routes all over Los Angeles. So that was a, a key station. And I made it into this entire 
marketplace and I had uh, soccer fields as well because you know soccer was not wow. very big in the United States <laughs> and so it was just everything that I thought uh, really would bring the people that actually use these stations to actually have meaningful exchanges and so uh, it was it was it was a difficult discussion sometimes with the faculty <laughs> um, but I really kind of you know stuck to it I I really felt like we needed to pay more attention to how we were activating spaces and who was really using the spaces that we were designing for. Uh, now I think the dialogue is very open and it's great. Mm -hmm. But back then it wasn't. Uh, to talk about social responsibility back when I was in school was not um, was just not the cool thing to to do. And I did have um, one instructor at that time, with one of the thesis advisors that told me uh, when I presented my thesis, he said, uh, we are uh, architects, we're not social workers. <laughs> he said that to me. And I, luckily, I didn't have to say much more to him because there were a lot of people around in the room at that time that objected to, to his comment. Uh, but I think it was part of the process because I think in retrospect, now I see some of those, uh, some of those voices have come around you know, to really just openly talk about the responsibility that we have uh, as designers, as young architects, to addressing, you know, people. Yeah. In Los Angeles, people of very diverse backgrounds. Right. So I think my effort was really to try to make sure that I found a place where it was my happy place in architecture. If I didn't feel like I could make architecture that was uh, relevant and that was for people, then I, I wasn't sure that it was maybe for me mm -hmm. in the end. Yeah, I think a lot of people go through that struggle. So how did you find that next step after you graduated? Well, I, I started working in offices that had a housing, multifamily housing focus. So I did work extensively in that area in urban design. Mm -hmm. So I had a background in uh, urban planning. So urban design was, was a sort of a logical choice. Uh, but at the same time, I was part-time teaching. So I was, was full-time uh, working in offices and then part-time teaching. And I started at East Los Angeles College, where it was a key moment at that time. A young woman who, I, I think she must have been maybe, I don't know, 18, 19, with young children. And she came up to me after class one day and said that she really could see herself in the future just by having my class. Not so much for what I was teaching, even but just to see me as a woman, Latina, in an architecture classroom, that suddenly she realized that maybe there was a place for her, you know, in the, in the profession. And that really struck me. There's, I mean, there's many episodes, I think, in your life, but that was one of them that really stayed with me. And so I stayed committed to teaching, not just now I'm at Cal Poly Pomona, mm -hmm. you know, full-time thank God, but to continue teaching the, the populations that really need a push in finding a direction and hopefully also a direction into architecture, because unfortunately, I don't think it's a field in which we are getting a lot of students that, you know, perhaps, uh, well, I mean, minority students, certainly African-American students, Latino students, to, to really find a place in the profession. So I think it, it goes back to the community colleges. Certainly, it goes even further back to high school, which is why some of the work that I do now involves high school students. But it, it feels like I've been regressing, right? The age group, <laughs> I keep going back and back, reaching them earlier and earlier. 
Um, but anyway, so yes, I started with that interest to reach out to the students that I felt like maybe I was in their spot at, at one point in my life. Yeah. How did you find architecture even? Well, actually, my, my dad is, was an engineer with a minor in architecture in Mexico City. So he never practiced in the United States, but I always watched him doing that. I wasn't the one of um, in my family that was meant to become the architect or the engineer. Or huh. It was my brothers. I was uh, <laughs> I was not the one meant to to be the one. You what know? were you meant to do? I, you know, I don't know exactly, but I know that at an early stage in my life, my dad would place me in the typing classes in junior high school, there were these typing classes and, and I would complain and say, well, why are, you know, my brothers, why, right. you know, taking these other classes, you know, they were taking karate, English, you know, even back in Mexico, the English classes. And I said, I want to take those classes. Uh, but no, my dad just, he, he wasn't someone that would really explain to you his rationale. He just knew very clearly what he wanted us to to do. I feel now that he just wanted to make sure that at the very least, I would have some office skills. And that said a lot to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we never actually had that discussion, but it did say to me enough to spark (laughs) a, a sort of fire and maybe anger. Sure. Uh, that ultimately, I think, leads me to who I am today. I, I um, Maybe I acted a lot against that patriarchy in, in, the, in, in my family, certainly in a lot of Latino families. Uh, but in the end, I, 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 th- I think I owe it all to his, <laughs> his, his lack of belief of what I would actually become. But I, I thank him every day. I don't. I don't have any uh, regrets about anything um, because sometimes you know you have to get that pressure from society. Yeah, you know? sometimes proving someone wrong is yes. a great motivator. Yes. I know it's bad. I, I don't know that it's a good thing, but yes, indeed, yes, indeed. <laughs> Okay, so you were teaching and working, which is a lot. <laughs> and so how did you come to Cal Poly Pomona? I came to Cal Poly because a lot of our students at ELAC used to, or are still interested in in transferring to Cal Poly. So I knew Cal Poly was around. I also got an opportunity to teach at Woodbury University at that time. So I was sort of starting to build a record of teaching mostly in the housing studios because it's a practice that I followed. And then sort of from, you know, someone that gives you a little push, you know, so at that time, uh, Norman Millar from Woodbury really pushed me to just move and do some greater things. And so he pushed me to apply to one of positions here oh, at wow. Cal Poly. And at that time, uh, Judith Shine was here. And so I think through their connection. So I, I applied here. I, I, it was a very lucky, I think, uh, moment. Maybe it was at a time of transition at Cal Poly Pomona. There were a lot of professors here that were retiring at that time. This was 15 years ago, more or less. And there was room for not just new people, but room for maybe a diversity that hadn't really been here before. A diversity with women, a diversity with uh, uh, Latinos also in the department. Mm -hmm. So I think I was maybe the first of that hire. Now we have, I think, a much more diverse department. We have women. But, you know, when I came in, it was it was difficult. They were coming from, 
you know, from having faculty, a large number of faculty retiring. So they kind of had had their ways, you know, very in place and had established a department to uh, have a very uh, unique identity that it was, it was just at a time where it was logical to open up and look at more closely at the populations that we have here at Cal Poly Pomona, which is such a unique place. Um, I never taught in a place where there is almost a balance, you mm -hmm. know, uh, ethnic balance and gender balance. It's really amazing. Um, we don't have uh, a, as many African-Americans as we would like, but I think that's across, uh, across the board. So, And I've noticed the numbers are increasing too, yes. year after year, which is yes. good. Absolutely. We pride ourselves in the diversity that we do have. The numbers are changing. Architecture is becoming more accessible. It's a great thing. I think it uh, unfortunately has not been an, a very accessible profession. Yeah, let's talk about some of the classes and the work that you're doing, because I think in every way I see it connecting to that, mm -hmm. to making architecture more accessible. I started teaching studios here that were design-built studios, taking students to Tijuana back in probably in 2004, 2005. There's so much need across the border. There's need everywhere, uh, definitely. I felt that taking students into an environment that was drastically different than their own, where it challenged their very, you know, cultural beliefs, their very core that everything that they've been taught to strip them of the language, right, really brought some incredible lessons. So uh, against, you know, all the odds of logistics and it's a tremendous amount of work, right, mm -hmm. to, to take uh, groups of students to actually do construction projects in, across the border. Uh, we did it. I mean, we were you know, it just it took a few years, you know, for us to get the formula right. But uh, but yes, we were doing projects in Tijuana for maybe something like 10 years. And it was primarily a relationship with an organization there called Corazon, Familia Corazon, which is a nonprofit that works with families in need. And they already have a culture established of having groups that come from the United States and sponsor the construction of a house, a very simple four walls and a roof house. Uh, it has a lot of shortcomings, but still, nonetheless, it's it's better than where so many people live. I mean, many people across the border live in houses made out of, you know, just boxes. Uh, became involved with them and started talking about a, real, a collaboration where we could, you know, start to to do something. But I didn't want to come in and have the students build those houses. I wanted to have the students come in and just look around and, and really take it all in and create projects that maybe are not typological projects that might be hybrids of things that could be used by people there to assist their daily life and just, you know, to live better. So we started making these uh, structures there. I call them infrastructures, sort of after the word infrastructure, <laughs> uh -huh. sort of, because they, they really were combinations of, of uh, architectural uh, structures that serve purposes like bus stops, replacement of like a park where there's lack of public space. You know, these were structures that we were, would build on the streets in, in these terrains where the houses are uh, very informal settlements, nothing is paved. The you know, they, they, there's a lot of problems of runoff. And I mean, so the problems are immense. 
But at the same time, you know, introducing the students to just some basic ideas of how to improve the morale of the people and bring people together was uh, was a start. And uh, and they were the biggest lessons. You know, the, the students created structures sometimes that were intended to be something. And then the big lesson was actually when it was used as in some other way, mm -hmm. right? Because... Uh, Oftentimes, you know, students would come in with their fantastical ideas, which was a great start. <laughs> and then uh, once they met with the families and, uh, and once they actually had to do the drawings and plan the materials and how to build it, suddenly the projects changed dramatically. I remember one student once told me that when he saw the children in the household that he was working with, And he was designing this contraption that was sort of a staircase storage contraption for this family because they basically had to transform their little tiny home into a place that could serve five people sleeping in, in the home to suddenly, you know, be in a functional daytime space. So he said that once he saw the children and he looked back at his design, he just decided to go back to the table and said, you know, I said, well, you already have an idea what's going on here. He said, if something happens to these children and in my design, that's my responsibility. So I'm going to, I'm going to make some changes. <laughs> and so I think those were really the biggest lessons, you know, to have the real contact with clients, even at that sort of rudimentary um, beginning and to have to execute it and to have to find funding for it, right? So those were all lessons on material selections, on funding and budgeting of the project, on, you know, safety, that it they're just invaluable. I feel like the entire curriculum, you know, could be expressed through these projects where you have uh, real clients. And there's many of those projects all over the The schools. I mean, it's not that, you know, we're unique in doing those. Um, I do feel that we had a unique uh, set of circumstances just because we were very limited with means. But we were practically living with the families those days. We would go down to the borders, you know, sometimes stayed in their homes and, you know, build with them and they would feed us and, you know, whatever they could and we would build together. So it was really more than just coming in Let me build your house because I'm the expert. Mm -hmm. Here's the house. You can live it. Right. right? It, it was different. I, so that's why I didn't want to take the students just to participate in building the home that the organization had already a perfect mechanism in getting done because I felt like the, the real lessons would be missing. Right. Yeah. So anyways, projects like that, they've grown. Those projects, you know, grew Uh, to become different kinds of, you know, uh, things from small structures to outdoor, you know, places for families to expand their interior spaces, which were very lacking, to addressing the ground terrain, which most of these communities are not paved. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of problems with with runoff and uh, sewage. And so, I mean, the, the need is so overwhelming that uh, the experience for the students at first was overwhelming, where you just sometimes get there and you're like, well, I can't possibly do anything here that makes a difference because the need is so great. You would have to just completely move these people to safer areas and, you know, have foundation systems and caissons. And, well, you know, but when you can't do that, you have to do something. Anyway, those were the biggest lessons. I do believe I would still be doing that work with the students if it wasn't because it's um, we have some restrictions now from right. the university in travel to, to Mexico. So it has become 
uh, more difficult and the liability, I think, um, as it increases, it makes it difficult at the institutional level to do those things, which is unfortunate. Right. You know, we we have such great lessons sometimes that we could do with students and and I think uh, sometimes we really need uh, more support from the institution to allow us to, to do those kinds of things. Right. And I mean, not just the institution, but politically. Yes. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is true. We ha- oh, my gosh. Yeah, that is true. Anyway, it, it's, right. it's endless. Right. But there's always need. There's need everywhere. It's just capitalizing and making a choice, capitalizing on the need to make a project and and give something back. And you're being really modest because you also, it was awarded the NCARB's Grand Prize and New England Resource Center for Higher Education Citation for Distinguished Engaged Scholarship as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for that, that work. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, I have to say that the Tijuana work was, um, I did that work for, you know, 10 years. At some point in those years, we had collaborations with other departments. And so I will, you know, absolutely credit that the NCARF prize, you know, we won with the Tijuana work as a collaboration of faculty here from Cal Poly Pomona and members of the community and students that were taking our classes from different departments. So in the end, I think the NCARF grand prize was the culmination of all of our small efforts and finally coming, you know, coming together and say, you know what, we can be interdisciplinary. We can, you know, provide a service. We can make our professions more accessible, and we can have the NCAR Prize to prove that the profession values it. Right, because that ultimately is what matters. You know, I it was it was it was very meaningful the prize for me personally. I think because again, in early on in my education, I feel like I was discouraged from dealing with uh, social components in some of the projects that I was doing in school. So for me, it was the huge victory. And of course, yes, the NCARB Grand Prize. I mean, it was, it was amazing <laughs> collaboration. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Yes. I mean, from that came the Award for Engaged Scholarship was sort of natural. I think that um, those things come naturally when the work that you do is already focused on on something that it's, for me, it's a lifetime mm-hmm. of, I, you know, I, I didn't try to uh, create a project that could win. It's just the way that <laughs> what makes me happy, <laughs> what, what makes me happy in the profession. Uh, so it was, it was very, it was very special. That's so cool. Um, so how did the class I saw uh, last year with the high school students. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? The collaboration with Augustus Hawkins High School in South LA came about actually because my partner is uh, very involved in, in uh, politics of Los Angeles, and he does a lot of work with uh, nonprofits, and he's affiliated with many boards. And so I have to thank him for seeing a connection of what he knows makes me what I am and seeing a need in the community, right? And so the Augustus Hawkins High School was doing a project already, which was to have the students take a look at their communities. And I remember at that time that my partner came uh, home one day and he said, you know what, I I sat, you know, as a, a member of the board, I sat in this meeting and the students presented their projects and their research and it all sounded great. 
And then they brought out their renditions of what <laughs> the place would look like, their, their communities once of the things that they were imagining. And it just brought silence to the room because they have these great arguments, but clearly did not have the, you know, just the, the skill set, obviously, right? They're not architecture students to really be able to translate their ideas for all of the things that they were seeing in the world and experiencing challenges in their community into something that would be you know, visually powerful. And so he said, this would be great if you partner up with them. And as an initial idea, I thought like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And he had told me at that time, he's like, these are 12th graders. They could combine very well with your students. And I said, that sounds great. Let's do it. So I initially went to audit the class just to sit in because I feel like I'm completely out of my league with um, students th that young, I mean, 12th graders. So I thought, I have no <laughs> idea how to teach 12th graders. I better observe the class. So I sat in the back of the classroom. And first of all, I arrived. And it turns out that it wasn't a 12th grade class. <laughs> it was a ninth grade class. So these are 14-year-olds. <laughs> and I, you know, I just completely freaked. Oh, my God, I cannot. There's no way. And so it was, it, these are all great lessons not just for the students in the end when we make the projects, but for the faculty, because for me, it was a learning experience, right? I mean, every time that you take on these projects, you've got to lead the blind, <laughs> right? So there were great experiences for me to just break my own even stereotypes of what I thought a 14-year-old in our era is capable of doing, you know, with some direction, right? And But initially, my first reaction to the classroom was, Chaos. It was, you know, <laughs> uh, kids running around everywhere and um, throwing things around. And, you know, just I, I love them to death. I don't want to, you know, demean the work that they do or discipline they do in the classroom, but it was very chaotic. And I didn't know how we would get them to just come down for a minute and sit down and get their attention. And so that was really the first lesson before we even thought about how we could engage a project, you know, their ideas transforming into architecture. We had to work on how are we going to get them to sit still, <laughs> to just even <laughs> listen to us. Um, so, you know, we were so paranoid of that first experience that we overprepared, which is great. I mean, I came back to my classroom here at Cal Poly and I entered the classroom to my students and I said, we're in trouble. <laughs> we have to be so prepared, right? We have to cover all our bases. We need to have, you know, 10 different ideas because if something doesn't work right there on the spot, we're going to have to try something else. So I think I made my own students so paranoid of these, you know, great 14 year old kids, you know? <laughs> That we, we overprepare, we, we arrive with uh, multiple of hands-on exercises. Uh, we introduced ourselves not with our names and, you know, background, but we introduced ourselves with our projects. And so I actually had my architecture students come into the classroom the very first time, each of them carrying a model, an oh, architectural cool. model. And the students just stopped. The, the high school students sat down and they were looking very intently like, what is that? I mean, and we tried to find the most eccentric architectural models that we had. Um, <laughs> and so it was great because it was the icebreaker, right? First, yeah. they were interested in the projects. And then they started asking questions to to the students. And so it, it worked very well as an introductory and 
um, we had other hands-on building competitions where we would, you know, make teams and have um, simple competitions on building with sticks, which was really, it was very useful also because we were sort of doing learn by playing kind of um, mm -hmm. exercises. Uh, so I think we we kind of gained their trust and um, and I think also their respect because they could see that wow they're at university or they're studying this and so it was beautiful it was not I expected it to be chaos and it was not you know once we took the time to really think about who they are what they do how old they are what kind of things they're interested in. We were able to engage them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same lesson we have as, uh, you know, in the profession, right? I mean, if we don't get to know our clients and understand wh who they are, what they like, what makes them tick, then, you know, then it's just a me project, right? I'm here to design a project for you right? rather than what do you want, you know, what is it that you envision? And so it was also a very good experience. I don't think we get those experiences in school, I, mm -hmm. I think you really have to get them by being humbled by exchanges with the community. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine the effects that this could have on your students, like the high school students, for example, the seeing people like themselves just a few years older and what they're capable of, first of all. And then for your students also getting that responsibility of teaching it is really hard and it is a responsibility and to see that they were successful at doing it that must have been very rewarding for them too yes no absolutely i uh, we did a lot of debriefing with the cal poly students after each session where they would uh, note the things that went well and the things that could go better. But it was mostly rewarding experiences, you know, where um, students really realize that the real test is when you have to explain it to someone else. When you have to teach it to someone else is when you really realize how well you know it, right? So yeah, for the Cal Poly students, it was also very, very rewarding. And at the final presentation, you know, when the high school students with the Hawkins students presented their projects that day they the Hawkins students came in dressed up with in little suits and you know I mean we almost didn't recognize them because <laughs> in the classroom they had you know been just fun and games and um and they presented their projects and the Cal Poly students were in the room to hear the presentations and and in some ways for the first time the Cal Poly students were taking the seats of of the jury right mm -hmm. and not everybody ever gets to do that, right? Well, I was wondering what they would become because you could sort of be, oh, that's payback now. I get to right. tell you what, what's wrong with your project. But they became incredibly nurturing with their comments. Mm -hmm. And I could see them be very thoughtful in how they articulated comments to the high school students as they presented in order to push them through, you know, the nerves and <laughs> and to get them to talk about ideas they forgot to discuss, right? Because they were in front of a panel of um, community leaders and city officials. And uh, so they were extremely nervous. And, and so that was really rewarding, you know, because they, they got a very nurturing role. And in fact, it was really, you know, sort of your success is my success. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if, if you go up there and do a good job, you know, and <laughs> I did a good job um, as well. They got to know how you feel. Yes. <laughs> I think for, yes, I, I think so. I I really do. I mean, and it's uh, it's a, you know, 
those little lessons are good, I think. <laughs> yeah. For sure. It's like um, with your parents where it's such a thankless job until you grow up. <laughs> yes, and you have your own and suddenly... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. You know, I, I don't have children, but I feel like I have hundreds and hundreds of them, you know, because they are all, you all sort of nurture them in that way. Right. Um, you know, you're also doing the China mm -hmm. Study Abroad program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everything seems like you're having the students look outwards and mm -hmm. try to gain experiences that are outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about the China program? Yes. So the China program was a program that started because I have a lot of interest in, yes, in, in exposing to students to foreign um, canons of thinking. You know, I think that in the United States, we do lack an understanding sometimes and what's out there or even seeing how other people view us uh, from the outside. Uh, I think there's great lessons, you know, pushing students outside of their comfort zones. The China program came about because I also wanted to push myself out of my comfort mm -hmm. zone. And so I've always had interest in study abroad and traveling abroad. And when I talked about the idea, first I talked about the idea of starting a study abroad program. And I faced a lot of immediate comments. That's great. It's going to be great for you to take students to Mexico and a Mexico program would be great. And, and it would be absolutely great. But I had to stop and really push the things that really would also make me grow in, uh, as a person. And, and I felt that, uh, at that time, uh, which was, uh, the program, the China program started in 2005. At that time, there were really no established programs in China, architecture programs, much less an interdisciplinary program like what we have here at Cal Poly Pomona with landscape architecture and urban planning. And so it was really kind of a first as an effort to take students to a place that has not been too explored at that time, a place that is all the lessons, I think, uh, at least initially, of the things we teach students not to do <laughs> in many mm -hmm. cases. Uh, and just to see development happening so fast, uh, where you can get the lessons of history in a couple of years, <laughs> you know, where we see those changes here over a hundred years. So China just seemed like the logical place. But at the same time, I, I really felt like, well, where would I never go on my own? You know, where would I, you know, people want to go to Europe. I would love to have a program in Italy. But I thought that, you know, that was... A selfish reason, you know, I said, well, where would it be just the most challenging and discomforting, <laughs> <laughs> discomforting, I'm like, it's China, you know, because China is really, oh my God, I always tell my students, it's not for the weak of heart, uh, although certainly I think it's those people that, that, um, that have insecurities that should go to China because it just forces you to get out there and survive. So, uh, so, you know, China gave us all of those uh, lessons. It was, um, it's an incredibly challenging place. It's amazing. And the, the Chinese faculty and, and students have always been incredibly welcoming of us, despite the differences in belief systems we've learned, you know, through 15 years mm -hmm. to understand each other. And we've learned to respect each other. Uh, and it took time. It definitely has taken time. But it also, um, I think, evolved into a relationship where we have benefits beyond it sending students 
to some location. We worked very hard to incorporate a project for the students in China that would have also a social component, that would also have uh, the user in mind, and that would be looking at uh, maybe communities that were disadvantaged in some ways. Having said that, China, right, to yeah. do that, it's a very challenging place. Yeah. Because it's a top-down society. It, it's, it's beginning to change. But uh, at that time, it wasn't really about the individual. It was about once the machine is moving in one direction, everybody goes in that direction. There's no questioning of the methods or the goals, right? Mm -hmm. We just move together. So it was challenging to get our partners there to support us, you know, with, right. with pushing the students into the communities that were being uh, demolished, like entire neighborhoods, historic neighborhoods that were being demolished Wow! Uh, to make room for progress, right? Because right. Uh, China was moving so fast and they were building very fast. So I think although their direction has changed now, they're, they're starting to preserve um, a lot of the things that are left. Uh, there was also a lot of things that just didn't make it, right? Wow. That, were, that were demolished. And so our students basically em embarked in interviewing a lot of people and getting their thoughts on that. And that was challenging. A lot of people didn't want to, right. to speak uh, against, you know, the principles of their country or have an opinion or... Um, but at the same time, you know, through several years of going with the students, it became uh, a project that, I mean, we were not there to, we were very respectful of our hosts. So mm -hmm. we're, we were not there to raise waves. And we always talk to the students about um, respecting the, the culture because ultimately we are guests. Uh, but we were able to really look at a lot of the issues of development and, and how to perhaps propose ideas of development that would mutually benefit developer and users, right? Some of the local citizens. And it's been a great collaboration because from the many things that I've done with the China program, the one that I feel like was absolutely key in making it the success that it is today is to invite urban planning and landscape architecture to collaborate with my department, right? With architecture into an interdisciplinary program that would do an interdisciplinary project abroad, just best decision, you know, um, it has gained an identity. We have also uh, won awards, you know, with that work, uh, you know, we won the EDRA award, which is the Environmental Design Research Association award for best uh, research project. And that was, again, a collaboration of three disciplines uh, coming together and putting aside the differences, because there are many, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, baggage that we carry from the professions that sometimes create tension, especially between architecture and planning, or, <laughs> you know, these things. But it would not be successful, I think, the program, if it wasn't for that. You know, the work of, um, of that studio basically led to uh, national awards from the American Planning Association. And, uh, and hopefully we can do more of that. That's really cool. What are some of the projects that came out of that studio? Well, we deal with a different community every year, but they are all communities that are in historic neighborhoods. Uh -huh. And so um, one of the greatest victory I think that we had, we actually collaborated with, again, our host university, which is North China University of Technology, 
to fight for the preservation of the Fayuan Temple in Beijing, which was also facing uh, demolition all around. And uh, ultimately, sometimes the buildings are so just thousands of years old that there really isn't a way to save them. You mm-hmm. just really, there's nothing left. I mean, it's falling apart, you know, so... Those questions make it very difficult, and we were actually, you know, able through the collaboration with um, with North China University of Technology to prepare a package that made a very strong case. Oh, cool! You know, to to preserve it and to show the the richness of the community. So to see the value from the stories of the people and the stories and histories of families that have been in these neighborhoods for generations, and so the project was mostly more of a documentary of the area. Uh, We did make some design proposals, but I feel like it was the documentary part that made the most impact where we really went, you know, on the ground and and made every effort to record and document and showcase things in a a way that you don't see in a planning document, right? Mm -hmm. Or on a zoning plant where Mm -hmm. something has the X for demolition, right? I mean, we really worked very hard to just show the the beauty of what was there uh, and the the families that are there. So I I think that's probably one of the greatest um, victories. And then from then, most all of the projects that we do there have to do with um, some level of historic preservation in some ways. Now Beijing is incredibly developed and uh, there's a lot more preservation efforts happening there. I've seen some architectural ideas happening now actually being built Uh, that some of my students were experimenting, you know, 15 years ago in the studio where it was not to say that they took the ideas from our studio, right, right, but just to say that they have opened up to um, kind of different ways of thinking, you know, communities that are so historic that uh, at that time, the uh, even the professors in China would say, that's ridiculous. We would never do something like that in a, to a historic building. Um, hybridize uh, architecture, for example, where you preserve the old but introduce new systems, which is a lot of what we were proposing. There was a lot of resistance to that early on. And I think now, uh, you know, as, um, as China has also been exposed and open to the outside, these projects are being built. And uh, so it's great. I mean, it's, it's very good. I think my students, you know, in, in retrospect can see some of the things happening in China and know that they were experimenting with some of these ideas in their studio projects. Wow. I mean, that kind of sounds like it'd be a cool book or something yes. for you to put together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we have one somewhere. We have much more work to do there. And we're due to structure a submission, I think, you know, because <laughs> uh, I think it, every every year is great. It's just having the time to put it together, you know. Yeah, I wish I had gone with that program. <laughs> oh, yes. That's right. You were here around the time that we were doing that program. I think so, yeah. It was mm-hmm. going on. So do you have any um, insight or advice with, you know, your students or young professionals who are looking at teaching, for example, mm-hmm. or making a difference? <laughs> wow. Well, I know it's a broad question. <laughs> it's a broad, yes. Um, well, I think the profession is, it's difficult. I think many of us teach to maintain a level of 
excitement, you know, because the profession is a difficult place. There is the glamorous side of the profession and there's probably is that image that maybe we see of the successful architect, uh, creator of the universe and soul mind of, you know, of a project. But I think the reality is that, that in the society that we live today, the projects that we have today, the problems that we're dealing with really require engaging other disciplines. So I think the thing I would say to younger generations or students that are either graduating soon or thinking about even going into graduate programs is to complement their architectural degree with uh, other degrees that not would take them away from architecture, but that would actually make them much more relatable and have a practice that is much more applicable and present and one that makes a difference. So definitely interdisciplinary practice. I think it's important. I would strongly encourage those students to do that. And then to really find uh, your passion. You know, I think... um, the architecture has so many different directions. Um, I found my direction and it wasn't maybe a direction that was always seen as glamorous, but I stuck with it and it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was looked down at many times. I've had um, even colleagues many years ago who said, oh, you're the one that does, goes to TJ to those shanty town things, you know, and so there's... There's always going to be some resistance to the things that you're interested in. But as architecture has been a tough of a profession as it is, you you really have to stick to what makes you happy and pursue it because it's just tough. If you really are just trying to follow the formula, you're bound to to spend, you know, the next 15 years in a profession where you're just mechanically doing things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just finding what makes you happy. I think that's great. And I mean, none of what you've done is easy. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm getting older, you know. So I remember years, years ago. I remember some of my mentor faculty would say, "Okay, you gotta like sit down for a moment and just like put it together. You gotta package it, you know, because you've been spending a lot of time just doing, doing. Like, where can we go? This is the most difficult thing. <laughs> Let's go to China. <laughs> you know, that will really challenge you and." It, it takes a toll on you and you do have to find the time to package it. I think maybe I'm more at that time now where it's like, okay, I need to slow down a bit and really continue packaging some of the work that we've done. I'm inspired by everything you do. Cause oh, thank you. I think it's very meaningful and it's even more meaningful knowing how hard it is for you to do that work and you follow through with it. So thank you. Thank you. It, it means a lot. And that's our show. Today's guest was Irma Ramirez, and I'm your host, Audrey Sato. You can find me on social media at XXLA Podcast or online at XX-LA.com. Now, as the year wraps up, I'd like to take a moment to personally reflect. For listeners who don't know why I'm doing this, I started this show because I was at a point in my career where I felt like I was at a potential pivot point, but I didn't know what I wanted. I felt pretty sad that I couldn't identify a concrete direction to move in. I wanted to find out more about how other women were succeeding in architecture. Did they feel stuck like I sometimes do? Were they happy? Were they staying up till 2am working like I was? Well, while I haven't made any earth-shattering changes, I have found a lot of comfort through this experience. I see pieces of myself in all of these women, and I've admired many things about them. 
This year, my architecture company has grown, be it slowly and incrementally, to include a few collaborators, and I've stepped back from teaching just for this year to focus a bit more on practice. I've also become the vice president of AWA Plus D, which is an awesome organization, and you should all join if you haven't. I've realized that I really value my independence, and I'm really thankful for that. To choose whether I'm teaching or not, or to say yes or no to clients, or to have a podcast and try to lift up others while I do the same for myself. Anyway, I'm really proud of what I've built, and I want to thank you for taking part in it with me. So with that, I wish you all a healthy and happy new year.